you know the good news, right? What's the Which good news? Which is that uh, you can now get a tax credit for giving your employees the vaccine. I forgot about that. I'm just Thank thinking, goodness. like, you know what's great is the really delayed gratification. Yeah, well, give them, back, give them time off to get the vaccine now. You'll get that tax credit in a year. You know year. what the pandemic's yeah. really been missing? Tax credits. <laughs> yeah, tax credits. We've not, we've not had enough. enough. <laughs> We've not, just not had enough of those. We've never met a problem it's, that a tax credit couldn't solve. It's the NPI yeah. we really haven't used. You yeah, know what I mean? Exactly. I mean, this is this is why there's been so much death in the United States, because we haven't used <laughs> tax credits. That's right. March 1st, 2020, if Congress had simply passed a tax credit targeted at the virus... None of this would have ever happened. <laughs> We're going to give the ta- virus a tax credit to go away. Exactly. The fewer people, right, the higher it gets a higher tax credit, the fewer people that it infects. This will solve it. But then there's like a cliff. There's some weird like benefit like cliff where like... death panel to support the show and get access to our second weekly episode which comes out every monday become a patron at patreon.com slash death panel pod so first first we're going to get into something that we discussed actually on a patron exclusive episode become a patron from early march called pfizer walk with me which um in that episode we talked about which was like at the time not really a very like often discussed aspect of the vaccine discourse which was like not the hesitancy stuff or like efficacy or the politics of like vaccine reluctance or whatever but we talked about exactly how countries were even getting the vaccine and the contracts and like prices and purchase agreements and really Pfizer has been signaling for months now in business press like, OK, get ready. We're going to start dropping booster shots. This is going to become a long term business model for us. And recently some contracts have leaked and you're already we're already starting to see Pfizer roll out higher prices for yeah. Europe. We now already have before we were kind of talking about this in the abstract. The, well, in the abstract, in the sense that this was something that was actually not not terribly abstract, because when they say I mean, because of the way that disclosure laws work, when they say on a on an investor call, for example, right. uh, the, like principally the people who are paying for the vaccines, like, you know, the, the question around that episode, for instance, was who who really pays for the vaccine and like how how stuff gets allocated, how a state um, how states purchase the vaccine and what the terms are and all of those things and all the exploitative agreements that uh, Pfizer and other companies, but we focus on Pfizer in that episode, um, have with with states. And, uh, and you know, when they signal in, uh, in investor calls and things like that very openly, mm-hmm. you know, as we kind of, I think, expect from everything that we know about the vaccines, the studies that we've uh, seen so, f- so far and what, what kind of general consensus probably is, that yeah, probably there will need to be boosters down the line just for you know for the purposes of continuing to confer immunity. And because there has been a complete lack of uh, movement at all to control Pfizer's international pricing scheme <laughs> or actually break right. patent uh, rules for this for this stuff specifically, because there's been no action on that. 
you know, they're very openly signaling we're going to start increase. Well, they were very openly signaling we're going to start increasing prices soon. And now, yeah, we have this. We have a leaked EU contract showing, in fact, yes, they they have begun to increase. Yeah, uh, and here's the, the here's the pricing schema and the bulk discount based on like you know when you're putting in your second order, we're going to charge X amount. And the pandemic pricing, right, as a construct, the sort of affordable or neutral pricing, the the pledge to not make a profit off of this situation has always been a temporary thing. The CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla, has been very clear from day one that there is a point where the COVID vaccine will become a money-making opportunity for Pfizer because ultimately like his job is to boost the stock in like in like press appearances, right? Right. And like we should be clear about what the cost hikes are. Like the cost hike for the EU is something like 60% higher than what's currently uh, being paid. So it's not just like a marginal shaving shaving up like a few uh, euros here and there. It's like a a 60% increase. So it's it's this order of magnitude where it's very clear that at this point, Pfizer knows they have these countries locked in. And and, and I, I think the question that like, you know, in all of this reporting, maybe it's just because we're not there yet. Uh, in terms of the sort of consequences of this going into effect. But like, I've not heard anybody sort of ask the question, you you never hear this in a White House uh, press briefing, like, okay, well, they, 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 they jack up the price. Then what, what, what will the government's policy be on how this is paid for? Like, will people actually have to, right. to, to a greater extent, like f- foot the bill for their own vaccines? I mean, like that... That question never gets asked, and and I think that that's one reason why this becomes possible is that, in a way, all of these other decisions about like who who ultimately pays get pushed off. Right, and I I think who is paying for the vaccine is something that's like very obscured right now too. I mean, there there have been a lot of people who've talked like, you know, wow, look, it's like going to get the vaccine shows you what like free healthcare should look like or whatever. But also on the same flip side, like you have dozens of people who are then getting charged by their insurance, their insurance has been billed, like the whole the whole cost behind the vaccine is incredibly obscured behind all these like different layers. Well, it's like very conditional depending on where and how you get it. And I think that is I mean, it is a really important question. That's one of the reasons why we talked about this in the in the Pfizer episode, but also one of the reasons that we've talked I mean, for for months at this point about how the vaccine uh, like intellectual property needs to be broken and validated and how nations around the world should just be able to make this. Right. I know that both the Pfizer and Moderna genetic sequences have been, you know, reverse engineered and are on GitHub, but expect this a swift boot of the state to come down on anyone who actually tries to make that kind of thing a reality. But still, I think, yeah, this question of at, at a certain point, it's not only it's it, it's a couple of things, right? On one hand, it is, you know, we have this there, there's no good reason for this company to be able to be openly profiteering off of, you know, the, the back of this global pandemic. Uh, right. And basically allowing essentially in, in the case of just let's take just the United States, for example, uh, also the EU, but like just the United States, for the exa- for example, if you know, the experience of getting the vaccine, uh, you know, whether whoever bills, whoever it's billed to or is not billed to is, you know, free, quote unquote, at point of service. That means that ultimately that dose is being paid for to 
this company. Uh, so the company is profiting off of it. But at the point where, where people are actually getting it, there a lot of people are experiencing it as free, which yes, does show a opportunity for what healthcare could look like, but also basically uh, obscures in a way that could essentially bolster a company like Pfizer's PR standing, basically, like it could make make Pfizer look good or beneficent or something like that. Uh, whereas it's actually just that, you know, the government is paying out to the company and not doing anything. I mean, this is why we're um, in some ways, this is why like B and I are writing a, a book called Health Communism Versa Books 2022, right. Right. which is that it's not only, it's on my calendar. <laughs> yeah, which is that, you know, it's, it's not only a matter of obviously, you know, the tagline of our show is Medicare for all now solidarity forever, but it's, it's not just a simple question of health finance. It's that the entire, the, the entirety of uh, the ways that uh, health is imbricated in mm. capital needs to be completely separated. And in so doing, you expose a lot of the rot and you pretend, you basically have to remake so much of the political economy to actually separate these things, right? I mean, Pfizer is making out like a king right now. They have it both ways, right? They are like exercising some pretty heavy assertions on the global biopharmaceutical like community on the WHO asserting their property rights like heavy and hard they get to promote that to try and like boost investment in their company and like raise their stock price at the same time they also get to appear to be giving the vaccine to people for free and they're making this global public good right and it's this incredible relationship where they have so much leverage right. right and what what i think you're seeing is this sort of incredible social reproductive work that is going into the idea of reinforcing that the vaccine must be a commodity right like it's just at the end of the day people are very very worried about what happens if the the ip is challenged right like god forbid you know we share it with people. Right. And then and to the extent that there are, you know, costs that are experienced, the idea is they're going to be so diffuse or they'll be able to be transmuted into other things like they, they become another justification for like uh, austerity hawks down right. the line of like, oh, we paid all of this for the vaccine. Uh, well, I guess we're now going to have to like cut social security or like whatever, <laughs> rationalize, rationalize social programs in any number of other ways. But by that point, no one will be paying, uh, you know, attention. Certainly no one will be paying attention to Pfizer. Right. right. Um, but the at the point of sale, they will have looked like they were they they were the social welfare. State. I mean, I think that that is in a way, you know, we sort of I think we've I've like joked before that, uh, you know, Pfizer, it, it increasingly looks like less like a company in this context and more like a, the power of a state. Um, because it's doing a lot of the things that I typically think like a state would be able to do. <laughs> it's it, it's leverage in negotiations certainly has a state like quality. But the yeah. other thing I think I can't help but see coming out of this is that down the line, all of this work that it's doing with the PR, you you might ask the question like, well, if it's it's, if it's so really so powerful, why does it need all this PR? And I think that part of the function of the PR is you begin to show that like you are in fact where people have to go, where, where resource dependencies uh, lead to. The people need you um, right. more, more perhaps than they need or trust um, any like public authority. Right. right. 
And honestly, I mean, I think that if you're in Pfizer's position, you really could not have planned it out better, right? Pfizer is at such a significant advantage. They have more power than the WHO. They have more power probably than any country right now. And as we move forward and they pursue this like sort of rent-seeking business model, which again, Borla has been promoting of like, well, you know, we're going to have these boosters and it looks like immunities may be conferred for nine months and we're going to have to start, you know, charging realistic market prices. This all like, you know, this whole like conversation about about vaccine hesitancy and whether or not, you know, we're going to be able to convince anti-vaxxers and and all the cheerleading of like, we have to say like rah, rah, Pfizer, because any critique of Pfizer could be seen as like a window of opportunity for anti-vaccine advocates. Yeah, critique of Pfizer is not inherently critique of vaccines. That's just that's that's that is just patronizing logic. I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. And and like this all obscures the fact that you know, the sort of blanket 98% efficacy that people are cheerleading, like, is not a sure bet depending on what your immune state is. And this is something we also talked about a couple of weeks ago that, you know, there, there is the very real possibility. And we've had the suspicion all along, just based on how the vaccine technology works, that it's possible that it won't work as well in some people like me who have... Um, medications that suppress their immune system through very specific immunological processes, right? Like if you have a, (laughs) if you have a, if you take a drug that interferes in the development of antibodies or eliminates types of antibodies, there's a chance that it could fuck up the process of the vaccine working. Right. So there's some research that was just just published on this stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, this is something that, that I think we've seen like anecdotal information coming in here and there. Um, there have been a couple studies that have launched where they're trying to ramp up the numbers to get, you know, blood tests on people on drugs like Rituxan or Remicade to, or Imuran, uh, Celsep to see if people are developing antibodies. But of course, because of the NHS and because of the capacity that the NHS has to like centralize medical data, some of the first actual information that we're having, like some of the larger um, feedback is coming from the UK. So there was a uh, study of 7,000 people with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis um, that was taken from 90 hospitals throughout the UK. Less than half of patients who took Remicade mounted an immune response to the vaccine. Yikes. That is... So then, huge. yeah, yeah. So then, in a follow-up study, because the UK is doing single dose, remember they're doing a single dose, strategy. or at least they're they're spacing they're, them, okay, more basically. Yeah, yeah they're like so, they're allowing more slippage for spacing doses. Yeah. So they did a follow-up study, and they, in the follow-up study, they found that. of people taking Remicade were protected after a single dose for Pfizer, and 27% of people uh, taking Remicade were protected after a single dose of AstraZeneca. So... You know, that's even worse. That's like just I'm like uh, I need to like go back and remind myself efficacy after a single dose in the general in the initial uh, trials of those vaccines was like double that at least. Uh, yes. Triple yeah, that. I mean, we, Triple that. and that's, you know, this is really imprecise. Like this is, this is an imprecise way to measure that stuff because the way that these trials were done in general was about doing the, the two dose regimen, regimen. right? So there's a right. degree to which the, like, uh, maybe even especially for the general population number, the, like the after first dose doesn't 
you know, necessarily matter or fit as much to reality as much. Just, I mean, well, not necessarily. I mean, we just don't know really for the yeah. most part because we don't really know what the long term effects of only having one dose are. And I right. don't, and we don't have not, not enough time has unfolded really to do both of them, right. <laughs> to do studies of both right. of those. But I think that, I mean, the, the bottom line here is that as we, as we've, uh, you know, talked, talked about before and talked about recently, this is just basically yet more, yeah, coming out that points to things that we were really worried about, which is that, you know, I think, I think a, a couple of things can be true at the same time. One, it's, it's good. I think that for the most part people do, I see a lot of people talking about the vaccines, for example, reducing it to, well, isn't the whole point, like I get the vaccine and then it's, you know, I, I don't have to worry or whatever. And, you know, even if I get sick, I'm not going to die probably, et cetera. And sh- sure, for a whole lot of people, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's, that seems like what is borne out in all of the studies um, for, for most people. But unfortunately, and this is, I think, something that, uh, you know, we focus on partially because partially because we know this is a huge community of people. Uh and also because th- I think this is something that is undercovered that we don't uh, that we're concerned about people getting uh, you know effectively left behind is that you know it appears that these 90, 94, 90, what, 90 whatever percent efficacy that's something that, that that efficacy is something you can expect if like you have a totally a pretty regular the immune official system. term is right. immunocompetent right, right. Which, immunocompetent which is well, itself. Yeah. Gross. Yeah. <laughs> but, right. and, but so, and so, and that, that's not to say, like, I don't want to give listeners the impression that I should, I should figure out if I'm one of these people and I, you know, if I got the vaccine, I'm, I, I might not be like, I, I might have like a, a, you know, a sliver of the amount of, of the like percentage chance of having antibodies or a degree of protection. Like for the most part, you're going to know if you're on these drugs, like these, like th- things like Remicade, things like Rituximab become like features of Your people's life. lives. Yeah. These are like, these are pretty serious drugs. We even did a whole episode on Rituximab before, like two months before the pandemic. We did a, like what's called yeah, the Rituximab so special. Yeah. With Charlie Mark Brighter as the Rituximab as the Rituxin. <laughs> yeah. um, Prince of biologics. So if you're interested in figuring out more about like that drug, uh, which I guess B hasn't mentioned yet, but there's another study essentially saying that it looks unlikely yeah that people on rituxin keep antibodies, antibodies which is great because bees on great it. for b because bees been on it um, yeah but I, mean, I mean this is another instance of of pharma getting to have it both ways and putting their thumb on the scale because if you think about how these studies are designed right it's not that we're saying like oh somebody lied and the vaccine isn't really 96 percent to whatever 90 percent efficacy or efficacious on uh, people, right? What we're saying is that actually that that number that's being quoted was from a study on people with normal immune systems. Yeah. So in normal immune system people, quote unquote, immunocompetent people, that's the efficacy, right? Except for that's not how it's being talked about. It's being talked about as this sort of blanket, like, look at the successful mRNA vaccines like they're so efficacious look at them go like rah rah yay woohoo like fantastic pandemic over except for like the problem is the way that we study this stuff the way that we design research studies like okay drug companies don't want research studies that show like 
failure, right? That doesn't portend well to FDA approval. If you can't get FDA approval, you can't get approval pretty much anywhere else in the world. Like you want positive data. So you do not study this shit on people whose bodies don't work the same way as most bodies because you're trying to find the average man. Well, which yeah, the, the, <laughs> yeah, the, the model, man. the model patient, the golden mean. Exactly. Well, which, which means that then the studies that will look at stuff like this come afterwards predominantly. Right. Right. And right. that's, I think that's what we're, we're, ju- we're just starting to see initial information on this. Basically, um, you know, the first time that we talked about this, I think there was the one study, which was on organ transplant, uh, patients, which on showed like Celsept and Imuran. Yeah. Yes. Which showed Solid like, state organ uh, transplant patients. I think 17% of them retained antibodies, something like that. Essentially, you know, people getting the vaccine, not mounting the immune response, uh, or either that or chucking antibodies after they've been made, because that's a common thing too with some of these drugs, because they will, some of these drugs literally, you know, go through your body and clean out antibodies. Yep. Right. So like a little Hoover. But yeah, now we're, yeah, now we have like a number of more studies, which is what we're talking about. But there's even, there's a lot more in the pipeline. So I'm sure that we'll continue to talk about this. Um, Yeah. But I think our critique is mainly that this nuance, which I think is very important, right, is completely absent from public communication and the public discussion of this issue. You have people that are like, it's fine. Like, you don't need to wear a mask outside. Like, you've been vaccinated. (laughs) Everybody's vaccinated. It's all good to go. And it's like, well, that needs an asterisk there. And actually, it should lead with the exception because the (laughs) exception is... making that the fucking culture war? Well, true. But also the exception is complex and difficult to understand, right? So, like, if no one is talking about this, it stands to reason that there are many immune compromised people or non-immune competent people who actually probably have no idea that the vaccine isn't working the same way in them or could even possibly not be working the same way in them. Right. And the communication is all that you're vaccinated, you're good to go. You're vaccinated, you're fine. But like a good way to, a a good way, I think, to uh, not necessarily deal with this, but I would say, you know, for example, if like, you know, like New York State, for example, where we have a lot of listeners was, uh, was quick to, not quick, but was quicker than a lot of places to add immune compromised people to the list of people who qualified for the vaccine. Right. So a lot of those people will now have gotten the vaccine and will be in a situation where they can uh, it's been long enough that they could reasonably like it might be a good time if they're able to like get tested to see if they have antibodies and antibodies right yes. now have your primary care um, physician test you for spike serology it has to be the spike panel serology. Does not constitute medical advice or legal advice yes but beg your um, pcp <laughs> to run blood work on you if you are on these drugs i'm just gonna have to start running that ad <laughs> That's just, just like every 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 death panel from now on. Yeah, is basically gonna have to. <laughs> we just be... have just have uh, Daniel just like hop in and do it. <laughs> Actually, this is another one that is a this does not constitute views, medical or legal advice. The views of the death panel do not do not reflect those of the universities that either that any of the, uh, that any of the hosts are affiliated with at all. Um, no, it's okay. CUNY can take it. But I think just one other. Uh, little thing but important is just to note some of the stakes for this obviously blanket like the amount of like the some of the drugs that are looked at in these studies are taken by a lot of people so having if this trend that we've been seeing for a bit continues with the with the studies that are coming out that means that we have you know a a bigger and bigger like essentially a growing group of uh, people who may not be mounting uh, antibody response and you know 
many of them end up in a situation where if they get COVID, they could then be sick for months. Mm -hmm. Um, They have a heightened mortality rate. Unfortunately, right now, and this is like if you read about this in the New York Times, for example, the like rosy picture that it paints is that, oh, well, immunocompromised people could just take... um, you know, could basically just be on the COVID MABs, monoclonal antibodies, like prophylacti- prophylactically. Yeah, love to see, love to see the Regeneron press people going out and being like, "Well, we could just use this other experimental drug, like weekly or monthly. Well, Who knows?" And like, I mean, the the awesome. question of it being experimental, uh, I, w- I wouldn't give the impression that it's bad because of this quote unquote experimental. I would just say that like monoclonal antibodies doing an infusion is like that's it's rough shit. It's hard. Like, I mean, you know, obviously, like I know this because of you, Yeah. (laughs) because I see you get infusions of, uh, of stuff all the time. And it's like the solution should not be, uh, we'll just hook up immunocompromised people. The huge amount of them that are in this country with monoclonal antibodies, uh, like monoclonal antibody treatments for COVID that they have to like, again, take prophylactically or that they take over like over time, which Right now, the federal government is is paying for all those predominantly that will expire at some point. Um, <sighs> monoclonal antibodies in general are also expensive. Drug, I mean, not also quote, like monoclonal antibodies in general are extremely expensive the drugs. The most that expensive are, drug category. I mean, we talk about Pfizer profiteering of vaccines like whole of, of uh, COVID vaccines, like holy shit, the amount of profit that could be made off of these MABs and what so that you can fucking go to the mall Right. Because, like, you know, some people on. like to wear lipstick, are so Like, yeah. <laughs> it's just like, it's unfair to, for me to stomp on people's rights to wear lipstick because I had the, you know, bad sense to be born with an autoimmune disease. Yeah. You're going to have, you're going to have people have to do like an extra infusion every like a couple of months so that like... <sighs> Because you didn't ever feel like doing a paid shutdown, like go fuck yourself. I'm Whatever. Sorry. Anyway. Like, yeah, I, I, mean, I sorry, go ahead. No, Phil. but it's I, I think it's like the you know, I can in a in a in a crude way, I can understand the um when when you're sold this idea that this is that, that basically that the state is not good at doing anything else. You know, it's that you're sold this sort of lie of well, it's impossible, politically impossible to do anything else. And you've got this one weird trick. <laughs> and, and then and then you're going to start you're going to start seeing people find things to be pissed off about when uh, things aren't going back as much to normal as they want. And, and, and that's the thing that's like these policy choices that we've made, all they do like they're. What whatever they're like direct effects, like giving people the vaccine or you know relaxing certain requirements, whatever their direct effect on public health, their indirect effect is ramping up the speed on the like hedonic treadmill of American <laughs> capitalism. It's like, well, if we can do this, like if I can go see an outdoor thing, like why can't I do that? Like, and yeah. if I can't do that, like why? You know, then just like it becomes. Um, it, I I think it sort of becomes ineluctable uh, mm-hmm. that this is where people this is this is why you're seeing these like trend pieces and takes on like oh do we really need to wear masks it's like yes of course of course we fucking do because you've been sold this a level of certainty which I understand you know like at a public health level sure I I guess I get the idea that you want to like have as many people get the vaccine as possible and that's a very good thing but at the same time like don't 
don't buy into the idea that this is like the one weird trick that like completely solves everything. But of course, you know, crises can end before actual health emergencies or pandemics end because yeah. mm-hmm. a crisis is, so, is a sociological sense. Phil, you, you mentioned looking for uh, hobby horses or, or <laughs> things to blame. I mean, one of those one of those things and I'm this frustrates me to no end. But one of those things is now to uh, like blaming immunocompromised people themselves. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we missed this when it initially happened. But just let me uh, read you two headlines from mid-March. New York Times, virus variants likely evolved inside people with weak immune systems. Uh Uh-oh. Science Magazine, UK variant puts spotlight on immunocompromised patients' role in the COVID-19 pandemic. And basically both of them (sighs) assert that because of the thing that I was just saying, (laughs) the exact thing that I was just saying, which is that these people who are more vulnerable because they have compromised immune systems who are more likely to then get like if they get COVID have it for months and months right. because and have you know, bad outcomes and have bad outcomes, but in general, like be able to like be, be likely to have it for months because they're, you know, their bodies can't necessarily mount uh, a response or maybe they are taking drugs that suppress their immune systems that like make it harder for them to fight the infection. Right. There is a kernel at least of uh this this story this explanation specifically out of uh one paper um or specifically because of uh one paper from uh this uh doctor uh Ravindra Gupta from University of Cambridge who basically was uh trying to assert that B117 the variant was uh was likely to have emerged from be from mutating for a long time inside of an immune compromised host as though okay. <laughs> as though you as though viruses don't mutate in any host right or all the time this is the right? like this is the like this is what dr paul Binash warned when i spoke to him about like variants and and you know disease escape he's like we can't pretend that the virus is like intelligent and makes selections right, right. this it is not this everyone. is not the movie the thing this is <laughs> not the thing <laughs> he didn't <laughs> seek out an immune compromised person with the intent to mutate into like a worse thing to thwart <laughs> boris johnson's plan to reopen the economy like that's not real nancy pelosi Going to deliberately choose Wolfer Brimley. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi announces a uh, a new initiative to round up all the immune compromised people and uh, prick their fingers to then test their blood to see if it catches on fire or not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's how we'll stop the variants. Yeah, God, jeez, God damn it. This is uh, this is great. This but, is going to be great. But you know what I mean? It's ridiculous. It's like okay, I get I get the logic. Well, okay. Yeah, blame, blame immune compromised people for the could. mutation. Blame them for their own deaths. Blame them for them catching the the disease despite being vaccinated. Like, go for it. Right. Yeah, but it's like, could could immune compromised people having the virus in them for a potentially longer period of time like result in a bunch of mutations? Sure. Like what? Whatever. Right. Does that mean that they were the culprit? Fuck no. Are you stupid? Like, like come yes. on. <laughs> I'm just gonna start replying to all those people with those takes. Just dehumanize me, daddy, over yeah. and over. That's it. But I mean, it's like, I feel like it's especially dangerous, too, because people like uh, Gwyneth Paltrow and all those fucking wellness <laughs> gurus, like, what is their line except for uh, we have a rising amount of immune compromised people because people aren't 
eating healthy or they're not living naturally or An something. An epidemic of autoimmunity. Right, exactly. And it's like, so already people are primed. They're like, they're, there's a huge public thing to prime people to not only sort of fear being ill and immune compromised, but also to demonize those as some, though they're somehow personal choices. Right. right and so right. it's this whole thing. I don't know. It, it's just, um, just lays bare the deep contempt that all of society has for anyone who is like any variation from the biological norm. Yeah. I mean, I know that I know that like it almost seems like we almost comically refer to everything as eugenics uh, <laughs> on this show, but it's just like it's just so it's everywhere. You mean accurately referred to? Yeah. <laughs> Anyway. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously we're going to have to uh, return to this topic as more data rolls out. Um, you know, we're going to, I'm sure, be hearing a lot more nuance on this because the fact of the matter is, is like the, the truth about the vaccines is that they seem to be really great, but we really don't know a lot about how they're going to work long term and in a lot of people. So this is just, you know, going to be a continuing conversation. So we... You know, we've we've talked about the, uh, you know, the new legislation that's sort of coming out in Congress. There are there are lots of there's been lots of talk about the uh, infrastructure plan and the sort of second bill, which deals with more of the isn't it the American family plan, technically? Yeah. 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 Which, you know, is supposed to deal with like more child care issues. And there's actually a not insignificant movement. It's it's like, you know a nice amount of noise being made about supplemental security income SSI um, in the American family plan, which is, which is good. And there is a letter that is circulating, which has a proposal, which is basically the, the bare minimum you could do to make this really, really austere program anywhere close to livable um, is actually sort of finally on the table, which is great. But uh, there are a lot of limitations still. Yeah. I mean, I feel like SSI is a program that I think very few people know about. Um, yeah. I, I've heard it referred to as like the other the other welfare. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the means test for SSI is individuals with no more than $2,000 in countable resources, which, fun fact, hasn't been updated since 1984, <laughs> that limits. Despite inflation, that's where the asset cap uh, remains. So essentially, you have to, with SSI, it's like a two-pronged thing. You either have to be above the age of 65 or have a disability, and you have to have this ridiculously low you know, le- level of countable resources, which, keep in mind, is mo- more than just like uh, income, mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah, every uh, pretty much anything is counted. Uh, housing, any gifts, groceries from family members, donations, um, being offered a couch to sleep on. Once uh, there's a couple cases of someone um, being chased down for fraud because they did not declare that they were allowed to sleep on someone's floor in a sleeping bag in the past. Um, yeah, I mean, it, I, I think that not a lot of actually not a lot of people actually really know about SSI, and so. SSI obviously um, is a it's a United States welfare program. It stands for Supplemental Security Income, and as Phil was saying, the target is the sort of lowest low income rung of the population that would already be on Social Security Administration programs like SSDI or um, you know just like regular like over sixty five Social Security and Medicare. So you know the 
idea is that this could also cover disabled people without enough work credits to qualify for SSDI. So people who were disabled at a young age and maybe weren't able to accrue those 40 work credits, they are cons- they are forever locked into SSI and never eligible for SSDI. Yeah, unless, and- unless they go through a extremely elaborate system of slowly accruing work credits for which there are things like nonprofits and stuff like that right. help you do that. But it takes, it, it takes got- an extreme amount of time and it is, just, it, 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 I mean, it's ludicrous. It's literally like you, you have people play like a game of mousetrap with their lives or something in order to even qualify for like the other program. Right. And there's with SSI, there's no Medicare eligibility. So let's say you're a disabled person who doesn't have enough work credits to be on SSDI and you qualify for SSI. You don't get Medicare right. access. Not not happening. That health care does not come with that program. You can apply separately for Medicaid. Most people on SSI uh, do qualify for Medicaid because it's, you know, the most austere means testing, I think, that exists is actually SSI. Um, but, you know, it's like the 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 situation is that basically like you you can't ever really work to get those work credits to get off SSI because the income limits on SSI are so extreme that you risk even losing the meager support if you earn more than like $65 right. over like your allowed amount per month. And it because SSDI credits are accrued based on dollar amount, like to get a, a credit correlates to earned income amounts, right? Yeah. It my, makes it impossible. My grandfather was going, to, he's on SSI and, and he was thinking about, volun- not volunteering, but like getting paid a very, very small sum uh, to work like, you know, as a sort of greeter at a funeral home. And they were like, yeah, you, you're not going to want to do this oh my uh, God. because it would probably put you like $5 yeah. over the uh, the limit. Well, um, this is where the subminimum wage work for people who are disabled thing comes comes into play uh basically that we've talked about before not a not super extensively but this is how this is one of the ways that you know essentially extremely extremely low paid under like again far sub minimum wage uh labor by disabled people is just it's like not only allowed it was basically i think introduced as sort of a one weird trick to allow this mechanism for slowly accruing it's credits a, it's right? a way to incentivize employers to hire undesirable employees god yeah right basically. like the tax credit of, of job of wage incentives <laughs> yeah. yeah no but like the current state of ssi is actually kind of a it's a nice recapitulation of the entire history of SSI. Uh, like a lot of things, it is just a, a, a flat circle um, because SSI was created in like 1972 and ostensibly what it was created to do was replace this system of really narrow categorical uh, programs for adults that was created uh, for like low income adults that was created in 1935 when social security passed. So you had like all of these programs, a program called uh, aid to the permanently and totally disabled uh, APTD. Mm. Oh my God. Um, I love that. And which was created alongside SSDI. Um, it had, you know, means tests. There were, you know, the, the, the level of disparity across state governments in programs like that was insane. And because you had these, 
you know, incredibly narrow constituencies and you didn't really have this, this sort of fight wasn't really part of the broader, um, kind of things that like labor was like fighting for. It was sort of like hived off. Um, you just had this like weird little collection of, of programs that essentially like a lot of the people who were behind SSI, uh, SSI's creation were like conservatives who thought that by doing this, you'd sort of like rationalize the system and like, <laughs> you know, uh, get rid of some of the you know, waste, fraud and abuse <sighs> um, sort of elements of it. And, you know, uh, you know, ostensibly, it also was supposed to like even out um, benefits across these very unequal programs. But there's a, a lawyer, uh, I think, named uh, Jay Eisen, who was like investigating the program in the early days. And he's like. Uh, his quote is, you remember those missiles, the ones that got two or three feet off the ground and then crashed? Uh, that was SSI. <laughs> wow. Oh my God. And, and I think that, you know, ostensibly what's happened since SSI was created is just that like the most influential, um, kind of organizations and, and sort of individuals in like sort of controlling the program have been like fiscal uh, conservatives who've always, you know, always, especially in the 1980s, you know, brought up these issues of like waste, fraud, and abuse. And, uh, you know, at, at times we were like, it could have been reformed and cr- could have been expanded. There was all of this concern about like people like cheating the disability roles and, um, like disabled so people have the energy to do that. <laughs> right. So like, so like what you have is still this, uh, incredibly narrow, uh, benefit. I think average benefits under the program are what, like five hundred dollars a month. I think you yeah. max out at like less than eight hundred dollars a month. The maximum is seven hundred and ninety-four dollars a month. Yeah, and that's so for an individual. There's a marriage penalty. So if you have two people on SSI and they're married, you don't make like what would that be like f- like fifteen hundred dollars a month. You actually make like one and a half times the benefit, not two times the benefit, and you max out at eleven hundred and ninety one dollars a month for a couple. Yeah. So like for I don't in, know what reason. Yeah. So like in, at the very least, the, the bare minimum like indexing like the the means test to inflation is just like, okay, we've got this like crappy system. Let's let's at least take the most egregious like part out of it. But still the means test even like by indexing to inflation, that's still not many people uh, are going to be uh, covered by this program. Right. Well, um, and so you're, it's like, you're, you're talking about the, the current proposal that everyone yeah, is, the current proposal. everyone's kind of right, clapping right. about, which is like, which, you know, I think it I, obviously it's important to raise these caps, but yeah, I think, I think exactly what you're saying is true. It's like, we're still, we're still talking about an extremely punitive uh, means tested program like obviously it's an improvement to raise the means at which the the cutoff is for the means test right but it's still a needlessly uh, punitive and ex- constructed in a way that is meant to keep people off right yeah i mean yes it's great to uh update it because these like asset limits are based on federal poverty guidelines from five decades ago but meaningfully speaking like this is not going to uh necessarily make the program any less violent and uh, any less of a burden for most of the people that need it that are probably not going to be able to access it because it's still going to be subject to so many of these like moralistic and ridiculous uh constraints yeah i mean i guess what i'm saying is that it's just maddening to me how 
the like the 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 stuff in this letter for example which are which are definitely like they're you know i i hesitate because obviously like these changes would be wins but they also are i think what should be the baseline and it shouldn't be looked at as this like progressive coalition victory you know what i mean right um especially when they uh leave out things like i think we're going to talk about in a little bit which is like they i don't know congress could just decide that uh territories like puerto rico uh could get ssi and medicaid uh for example but they're you know they're not incorporating that at all well and also oddly enough like the earned unearned income exceptions are not in the letter which I don't know why you wouldn't update that because that's one of the things that was that's tied. That's one of the main things. That's yeah. one of the main things that like also has not been touched since 1972 when it was implemented. And that limit is insane. So that's basically like they acknowledge the fact that this population that needs this benefit like necessarily has costs associated with their living conditions, right? Like the sort of costs of, of medication, prescriptions, assistive devices, Etc. So they give a little bit of an allowance for that. So there's an amount that you can deduct off of the top of your income that doesn't count towards your income for the eligibility determination, right? Are you ready for how generous that is? Oh, do tell. In the proposal? Yeah. This is no, the original document, which the proposal does not propose to touch at all. Yeah. This is the current and has been since 1972. So for earned income, they allow $65 a month of exemptions. So that's wages. For unearned income, which includes SSDI, by the way, uh, $20 a month of exemptions. Mm. So that is nowhere in the letter. No one is proposing to update that or index that to inflation. And that's been there since day one. I guess that's what I'm saying, which is just that it, it is saying... Oh, the system is unfair. However, only my, you know, it only needs a a minor tweak to make it somehow like slightly more humanitarian. I mean, like we we don't want this to be your grandfather's unfair SSI. We want this to be the new unfair SSI. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, for today's so, day and age, for, sorry, for millennials, <laughs> like no. But I feel like this is one of the things that happens, which is that there's so much because because the like the programs design the program designs we've like fixed in over over the years and like what sort of exists and like what advocacy type shops like will glom onto is like things that actually do from the point of view of their um constituencies uh and their funders and and so on and so on need to be fixed like that ends up setting the agenda there's not it, there's not like a clear constituency that's like out there like ah these are like the transformative things we would do like to SSI like that it ends up being like the energy in the system is around these sort of fixes which at the end of the day are yeah it's important low hanging fruit that needs to be picked but it's still low hanging fruit right. and and I the thing that baffled me baffled me and in, in the context of this proposal is. Of the five U.S. territories, only residents of one of them, uh, the Northern Mariana Islands, currently qualify for SSI. Of those uh, five territories, American Samoa, Guam, U.S. Virgin Islands, uh, Puerto Rico, um, don't uh, qualify uh, for these benefits. And it would be a fairly easy fix to 
you know, incorporate them into it. But right now, the Biden administration is still fighting uh, a case in which a, a resident of Puerto Rico uh, has been sued by the uh, Social Security Administration for claim for receiving SSI benefits as a resident of Puerto Rico. And the Biden administration's like still for some reason pushing forward with this, even though like it's pretty obvious that the federal government's like exclusion of of residents of Puerto Rico from this is like irrational and like arbitrary. Um, well, or I mean, is just part of the continuation of uh, like a, America's colonial project, right? I mean, why right, give, right. why, and, and, why and give the the, uh, the colonies the healthcare when uh, you know I don't know. Well, and the, and the facts of the case are like absurd. So in yeah. 2013, uh, this guy uh, Jose Luis Villao Madero. He was he was born in Puerto Rico, had lived most of his life in New York. Um, his wife uh, gets sick. She moves back to Puerto Rico to like be with her family. Um, he then moves back to Puerto Rico to take care of her. But he's also um, experiencing medical problems and is in New York on SSI. He moves back uh, to Puerto Rico and uh, in, in a short amount of time, the Social Security Administration says, aha, uh, you are collecting SSI, and then they sue him for thirty thousand dollars. Motherfuckers! Um, God damn it! And uh, overpayment. And their, and their initial claim is like very clear in the district court. They say, "Look at the plain text of the law. The plain text of the law says the only people that can qualify for SSI are residents of the United States in the fifty states, the District of Columbia, and the Northern Mariana Islands." Period. Right. Um, and the, the funny thing about this is that, you know, it's, it's worth thinking about like, uh, the U S territories, exactly what are they legally? And the only answer one can really come up with, if you look at the even recent decisions of the Supreme court decisions written by the likes of people like Elena Kagan, um, the territories law in the words of the Supreme court emanates wholly uh, from Congress, right? Congress exercises full plenary power over the territories because from the late 19th century, there's a series of things called the insular cases, which in very explicit racist and colonialist like terms uh, held that the territories were foreign in a domestic sense, meaning that unlike territories in the West in the 19th century could never become states because they were always going to be different. And if you read the papers of the judges at the time, they were like, these people are never going to be able to be citizens of a democracy (sighs) because they're of lower races. And this is essentially still good law, which allows the federal government to say, well, as long as we have a rational basis for excluding Puerto Ricans from these benefits, uh, we're not violating uh, the Fifth Amendment. Uh, we're not violating due process. We're not violating equal protection at all. This is just a policy choice of Congress, which has full plenary control over the 
territories God. of the unincorporated territories as they say in law well and and let's talk about uh some some of the the argument that they're making there too because i think also this is if i'm if i uh unless i'm mistaken this is going up to the, the supreme court yeah um now, it doesn't so. have a date yet in court but uh it is going before the supreme court right so this is something that uh um i guess you know we'll have to we'll have to be watching but it is kind of um you know, it's it, it, but it is frustrating that I haven't. I've, I've barely. When you told us about this case in the first place, Phil, because you're writing a paper on it, like I was. I don't know. I was really. I, I was pissed. I hadn't even heard about this at all, mm-hmm. to be to be frank. But um, I mean, basically, the one of the things that the government is arguing or has argued uh, previously when it was being heard in a lower court um, is that so, Phil, you mentioned, you know, the as long as the government has, quote unquote, like a good reason to uh, to exclude Puerto Rico uh, from this, from from uh, from uh, its its citizens qualifying for SSI. Uh, that it's you know able to uphold this again on its face racist prerogative that is based on the unfortunately familiar uh, argument of like oh these people can't integrate into society or or some bullshit but anyway um, their argument is uh, and I'm gonna I'll just quote from one of the things that the the government said in its uh, statements here. Quote, residents of Puerto Rico do not, as a general matter, pay federal income taxes, which is not actually true. Uh, continuing the quote, it is rational for Congress to limit the SSI, the SSI program benefits funded by general revenues to exclude populations that generally do not pay federal income taxes. What about so, the state? I mean, I mean so God. their argument is literally this is insane income drain like that it is that is a fiscal drain to that they have no that they have (sighs) no prerogative to support i mean again you know this shows how the government relies they're saying they don't have skin in the game like oh what what is the state's actual obligation to provide one universal incredibly austere benefit to everyone only people who are paying into the i mean it's not only fucking stupid not only no skin in the game they're saying that these people would be welfare leeches exactly by this logic (sighs) you could exclude Anybody from be- or anybody from benefits say right. if there's if their state didn't pay like but you know if you were going to apply the same same logic to states if their state didn't like pay enough in income taxes that like that that would be a rational reason to exclude people from the program now like or, if, or like, even not their state or if or if they themselves who often right. for example people who are on SSI often will be under the level where they have to necessarily like pay right. taxes like, that's basically the, using that same line of argument you would essentially be able to say like well these people these these you know these fucking disabled people and these fucking poor people who like uh who you know we don't really want to take care of like just uh you know they don't pay they don't pay taxes so that makes them less of a citizen and so we don't have to fucking do this program anymore fuck ssi you know what well, i mean like that's crazy income, like the income caps are so low that not a single person who is on ssi would be required to pay federal in like they would owe zero dollars right. in in income taxes anyways because their income has to be so low that it's below the line of where you're paying in at that level right like it, it, it's <sighs> Half yeah. people in these programs don't file taxes. I mean, this was a huge problem with the stimulus payments. Right. And I mean, like this this whole idea, I mean, de- decoupling it a little bit from like the, the legal argument that they're making, which is 
just patently absurd. I mean, this is the thing, like rational basis review. It tends to be the kind of thing that in a court, like anything goes like anything, <laughs> anything is rational, right? Like according to court. Right. But like this is like chairs. <laughs> yeah. Like even by this standard, this is just, I mean, this doesn't make any sense, but it really, to me, I think like, why does this argument, why is this something that you could even bring up? as part of your rational basis argument, it's because of this really stupid lie that we tell about the connection between taxes and spending that like in order to have like spending go out, taxes have to come in. And like these programs are like couple like taxes and spending, taxes and spending. And that's like yep. not how the programs work. That's exactly. not how SSI works. It is just not how it works. Yeah. But, but this like broader political argument about like sound finance and like public finance just gets, I mean, you could see how it is easily smuggled in. Luckily the judge in the first circuit uh, in, in the case is like, yeah, that's uh, bullshit because that's not how this works. <laughs> but I mean, that is, I think, the broader social consciousness about like how programs work. And it's just it's a lie every single time. Yeah. Well, and that's why we get so frustrated all the time when it also when it's uh, when that same argument gets leveraged for, for instance, like Medicare for all or for uh, or even for, you know, uh, for um, defunding or abolishing the police and people saying like, uh that the the defunding then pays for the social programs it's like no, no. You, you it's it's always um you know for for instance like it is always it is always not you know tax the rich to pay for medicare for all it is like tax the rich and, and pay for medicare for all i don't know you know what i mean or it's not uh like these 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 two things don't have to be linked and tying them creates the like yeah helps perpetuate fictions which include stuff like this absolutely absurd vindictive colonial argument that the government is going to be making at the Supreme Court. I shortly. mean it's manufacturing reality where cost benefit analysis continues to be necessary, right. right? Like and that's that's part of the idea. This is part of the idea of like of like the austerity principles of so many of these like welfare programs, right? Is the idea that resources you're starting from a point of resources already being like criminally limited right right no one is designing a program with people's needs in mind no one is going and and talking to these people who would need these benefits and saying what's your cost of living what medications are you skipping you know how many days this month have you not eaten food because you didn't have you know money to buy it because the average uh, if you were getting the the most amount you could possibly get $794 from SSI that's $26 a day to live on and most people that is their only income Right. right. Like, so <laughs> no one is going to those people and trying to figure out how much money needs to be spent to support those people's survival. That's absolutely not it. It is like coming from the exact opposite direction where these programs are designed and conceptualized with this idea of austerity being like the grounded reality that everything else is then built upon. Right. And like it's 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 important to to just like highlight like this isn't just a thing in SSI. Mm -hmm. Like it's also a thing in Medicaid. So like the amount yeah. of money that states and territories, well, that states get from Medicaid is based on a formula that takes into account like per capita income in the state, right? That's for all the 50 states. God. Um, now, 
already that's kind of ridiculous. And, you know, that, hey, you want to understand what means testing is? It doesn't just happen at the level of the individual. It also happens at the level of their state, which is absolutely really absurd. Um, But for the territories, um, uh, Puerto Rico in particular, uh, they get a an FMAP rate uh, matching rate for their Medicaid that's set in statute. It has nothing to do with uh, per capita income. So despite the fact that Puerto Rico uh, has like a, le- a really high level of poverty, it's comparable to places like Mississippi, um, Mississippi gets a far higher match rate uh, than Puerto Rico does, even though per capita income in Mississippi is double what it is in Puerto Rico. Uh, and that's just no. like, that's just like the tip of the iceberg, right? Federal law, this is another amazing thing. Federal law prevents airlines in American Samoa from flying to Hawaii. They what? have to fly to LA and then back to Hawaii. <laughs> oh and God. American Samoa has been seeking a waiver from this for like decades. And the federal government just refused refuses to give it to them. And this is the thing. These are these islands because they're not uh they don't really have binding representation at all. Federal government can just vary there's there's no leverage for them, right? right? They're geographically remote, economically highly constrained. They I mean e- even to the point where like they can't e- sometimes even afford a dedicated lobbyist to like push their issues. So like this is just one tiny little snapshot of American imperialism. And if you thought that the Biden administration was going to do any sort of like about face on this, just look at the history of what every democratic administration has done yep. uh, with respect to uh, the territories. It's really not that different uh, f- from party to party. And I think, yeah, the unfortunate uh, truth is of this, I mean, for for one thing, this is Yet, I mean, the fact that the the federal government, the Biden administration, the Department of Justice is like going to be arguing this case, like, you know, make trying to make the case that they have no prerogative to uh, to support the people of Puerto Rico is, you know, unfortunately, I think just another obviously there is a rich recent history of uh, the federal government demonstrating that it does not give a shit about Puerto Rico and will, you know, maybe wring what it can out of it and then otherwise leave it to die or let uh, companies go and like fucking run it like a junta and like uh, and profiteer off of it. But then and, you know, this is the thing about the letter about SSI that's circulating, for example, uh, to try and include some changes in the follow on families act or whatever from the infrastructure or for after the infrastructure legislation is that by all accounts, it just seems like the, the case that you were talking about before, Phil, of uh, you know, comparing federal government's welfare spend in Mississippi versus Puerto Rico. It's like the current operation of the federal government that we have is probably is essentially more likely to, I think, act on the logic of bringing every state's, you know, welfare spend down to matching yeah. the territories than it is to uh, to actually, you know, extend them to our fucking colonies. You know I, mean? I mean, I think it's, right. yeah, it's not a cute look to be 
putting like for the people that are putting forth these like changes to SSI to be really banging the drum of like, well, you know, disabled people deserve marriage equality if they're not even going to like attempt to push for like benefit equality across the territories as well. I mean, it's it's um I, I think there's always been this problem where you feel like if you're fighting for the bare minimum, you've got to take what you can get. But this is an instance where, you know, certain disabled people just by the luck of where they're born are selling out other disabled people who need their help right now. Which also is to say, I mean, if you've heard this uh, and this concerns you, like, I hope you see that these things are linked, obviously, right. you know, right. it's, it's just part of how the thing that you're talking about B happens is that I think, I think the, the logic of, uh, you know, uh, deficit balanced budget, uh, like, Oh, the welfare state is such a strain, bullshit or whatever you know that it encourages the atomization of needs Mm -hmm. in the first place and it encourages this kind of thing which would let you know uh say that oh to to i don't know what they would say modernize ssi or something that you would keep the asset uh that you would you wouldn't change the uh the income amounts or that you wouldn't address the the territories and and you know actually support them in the way i mean you're doing all the social reproductive work to demonstrate to people how cruel ssi is as part of that you need to be demonstrating what happens to people who are left out of ssi for reasons that have nothing to do with any logic that should make sense to someone who call who centers themselves as like a moral human being yeah also if you're going to show the if you're going to show that these programs are cruel and need to be to be changed or wholesale replaced with something entirely more uh generous right then uh i don't know maybe don't only show the top of the hill yeah you know, i would just love to see a little only, more solidarity on may, this yeah. maybe show more than the tip of the iceberg if that makes sense yeah but yeah anyway yeah. i mean and and i think one of the things too is that as largely you know these these programs necessarily apply to populations with very little representation and very little visibility and like i understand that this is like an uphill battle Um, but at the same time, it's like, I don't know, it's like what we talked about in our Medicare for all week interview with Dean. It's like no one does end up circling back for the people that get left out. And that's really important to keep in mind because time and time again, particularly with the people involved in the Biden administration, as we saw throughout the ACA, they never circle back to pick up the people that were left out. It's not going to happen. So if you compromise going in. And you agree to cut people out from day one and you're not going to like really go there. What what's the point of all the work that you're doing? You know what I mean? I mean, you ask for the big thing. You learn everything you need to know about a system by looking at what happens to the people who are on its margins at the at the boundary of inclusion in it. Um, So by by like this focusing on the territories isn't a local story. It's not a boutique issue. It tells you everything you need to know about Medicaid, everything you need to know about SSI. Yeah. yeah. And those stories, those stories that are at the, uh, you know, at the, the people who are at the margins of these programs or who are just barely excluded or who are 
systemically excluded because of, again, a history of racist colonial projects and, and imperialism in the United States. Those cases are not edge cases. That is the design. That's the design. That is the functioning ideology of the American state. And it is and it is unredeemable. So, yeah. yep. Anyway, <laughs> Uh, and for more on Happy Earth Day, sim- I guess you know. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Earth Day. No, but and and uh, actually, it, it now it's interesting because now that I'm thinking about it, um, in a way, this pairs well with the conversation that we had uh, on the patron episode this week about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, yeah, because yeah, it, it is a similar kind of. Let's make some broad tweaks and a lot of. Uh, and a lot of symbolic ones and then we'll celebrate that we made some sort of uh, progressive change and then we'll we'll drop it and we'll we'll promise that we'll come back and change things but Pinky then swear. it'll just continue to be an issue yeah. which i think is the takeaway that we got from that yeah yeah so. i mean i think the thing that 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 constantly people don't consider when you talk about like making demands and compromise, you know what I mean? Is like, there's always the conversation of like, well, you know, we got to compromise. we got to be realistic. And it's like, well, you also have to be realistic about like what happens after victory is declared, yeah. right? Like what meaning is made from victory being declared? People politically disengage. Movements are like fractured, right? Like the, then you have implementation. There's this political demobilization that happens after something passes. Like, you know, and I think it's like all of these things that we, that we talk about all the time on the show ultimately are about trying to talk through ways to like demand a political will that stops making the same fucking mistake over and over and over again. Right. Which is coming into this with this this austerity mindset that that things will always be necessarily limited. And that's just the way reality is, because functionally, it doesn't actually have to be that way. Right. You know, we have the ability to do and fight for so much more than what we're settling for right now. Yeah. You know, exactly. and I think that's probably a good place. A good to place. Leave it. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to like be a little up you know you, you think my earth day uh, <laughs> celebration <laughs> is enough to to, to arch <laughs> yeah the earth the it, the episode's just gonna like end abruptly at the earth day joke earth happy then, earth day. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> And the bottom line is Earth Day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, yeah, that's, that's my McLaughlin group. And happy Earth Day. Yeah. <laughs> bye bye. <laughs> exactly. Well, listeners, thank you for sticking through to the end of the episode. If you want to support the show and get access to Monday's bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash pod. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week. Thank you.
And as always, Medicare for now, what? solidarity. What? You said Medicare, you said for, Medicare now. for now. Oh my God. <laughs> Where did that one come from? Medicare for now. Medicare for now.